we've been, uh, the series is a, is a round table on suffering. And, and what we're suggesting by that is that there's lots of uh, ways to look at suffering. It's kind of a multi-sided topic. And what we're doing is we're going through different uh, authors in the New Testament and looking at what they have to say about suffering. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. Jude was Jesus's brother, and it's only one chapter long. And so we've been uh, examining uh, what he has to say about suffering. Now, by way of introduction, I think about how sometimes, especially Christians, and maybe if you're into CrossFit, how we view suffering as kind of this noble thing. And if you're, if you're really serious, you're going to be suffering. And if you're not serious, well, then you're not suffering. And it's almost a way of judging yourself and judging other people. Uh, your level of commitment is by how much you suffer. And so there's this kind of way to that you almost, we almost glorify suffering and that it's something that we should all be experiencing if we really love Jesus or really wanted to get fit or really wanted to study hard, whatever it is. We can ha kind of have this, this high view of, uh, of suffering and almost a low view of happiness, that if you're happy, there must be something you're not getting because we should all be serious and working on things. And so it's been interesting for me to study the book of Jude and to see his view on suffering is actually quite refreshing. And that what he presents in this very short book, it's only one chapter long, is actually how to get free from suffering. And so this is what we get to look at today, is how do we experience a life that's free from suffering and not defined by it? Now, again, I just need to say that every author, human author, in, uh, in the New Testament is providing different views on suffering. So this is just one view, so I'm not trying to say everything about suffering. We're just looking at the book of Jude. So we're going to be looking this evening at who suffers, when do we suffer, how do we avoid suffering, and what the challenge will be. So who suffers? Well, when we look at this book, it's simply those who deny Jesus by living a self-serving, divisive life. The people who suffer are people who are not following Jesus. There is only one reference in this book made to suffering, and this is it. It's in verse 7. It says, they, and we'll talk about who they are in a minute, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Only one time is the word suffering mentioned, and it's those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire, meaning hell. So who are they that are going to uh, experience this unwelcomed suffering? He describes three groups of people. The first group is those who were in uh, slavery in the land of Egypt. They were delivered by God's mighty hand out of Egypt. And then no sooner were they out of slavery than they began to grumble. And these people are described as those who are going to suffer eternal judgment. The next group is, which we never talk about, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on this, is rebellious angels. They're the second group that are given as an example. And uh, what scholars say is that these angels were in heaven with God and decided to leave their place of residence and go down and commingle with humans. And that's a whole other story for another sermon. 
but they're considered to be rebellious. And then there's a list of notorious sinners in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah, those who were sexually immoral. Uh, Cain, who killed his brother. Balaam, who opposed God. And the sons of Korah, who were defiant. And these are all examples of people who are going to suffer and suffer eternally. They're defiant sinners. Not just sinners, but those who insist on being a sinner, who insist on doing their own thing and being divisive. So suffering in the book of Jude is considered to be a just consequence. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically think of suffering in that way. I think of suffering as something that I don't deserve and didn't ask for. Uh, suffering is something that happens to me, uh, not something that I actually create. And if somebody even suggests that I create my suffering, I'm quite offended by it. I go, no, I don't deserve this. These things happen to me out of my control. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. I live in a fallen world, at least. It's the, it's, it's the cosmos's fault. But uh, to hear that suffering is rooted in being a consequence of our behavior is quite a disturbing thought for those who live at least in Vancouver, if not the Western world. Now, before we unpack this anymore, I need to at least give a short description on hell because it's uh, those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, I've preached on this in the past, but I just need to give a, a brief kind of explanation of what I understand eternal fire to be. The understanding of eternal fire is not that you burn in hell forever. It's the consequence of judgment lasts forever. So the punishment lasts as long as is just for the person in hell to pay for their sin. So every sin ever committed on the face of the planet gets punished. That's justice. There's two ways that sin gets paid for, either through Jesus dying for that sin or for you and I paying for that sin in hell. And the idea is, is that you pay for your sin to the point of being burned up. And that has eternal consequences. There's no coming back again. That's a, that's a, a final decision. Immortality is a gift that God gives his children. We don't, the soul is not inherently immortal. And so uh, you go to hell to pay for your sin and to the point of being burned up. It's interesting when hell is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I read gnashing of teeth, I read that as being anguish. Might be true, but a more accurate definition of what the gnashing of teeth is, is people who are suffering the just consequence of their behavior and resenting God for it. The gnashing of teeth is a sign of anger and resentment, not pain. People who, uh, who will go to hell resent, even in their punishment, still resent that their behavior had consequences that they have to suffer and pay for. It's fascinating. 
But this is what's being described in the book of Jude as those who suffer eternal punishment. So, who suffers? Those who insist on living a sinful life, and there will be consequences for that in this present world, and particularly in the world to come. So that leads us to our next point. When do we suffer? Well, the short answer typically is later. Uh, sin typically has a delay in its consequence. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Isn't that interesting? You know, you, you look at a child, and there's not an immediate consequence to their behavior, and they go, maybe I could get away with this longer. This looks like there's some possibility to continue in my sinful behavior. When there's a delay, which is often what happens, we forget and don't connect our sinful behavior to the negative consequence that happens later on. We forget that they're related to one another. This is difficult for us. In 1 Timothy 5.24, it says, The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. There's some kinds of sins that get immediately judged. If you or I were to kill somebody, odds are high, unless you're incredibly clever, that there's going to be a swift and immediate response to your sin. But typically, and the verse goes on, the sin of others trail behind them. And this is the more typical way that we experience the consequence of sin. There's a delay. We do something. It seems to have immediate benefit. And it's not until later that we discover the negative consequences of the choices that we made. Sin always promises quick and immediate benefit. It's why we choose it. If you're at work and you just did something wrong, it is super tempting to lie. It has immediate, immediate benefit that I don't have to admit the thing that I've done wrong and risk the consequences for it. Every sin that you can think of is always promising immediate relief or benefit. What isn't said, and it's in the fine print of course, is that uh, the long-term consequence of sin always leads to, uh, to some form of suffering. And so people think that they can put off suffering by, you know, sinning a lot, but eventually it catches up. And it always catches up, if not in this life, in the life to come. So who suffers? It is directly tied to our behavior, and sin has consequences. When? It's often later, so we don't see the connection. But it still will happen. How do we avoid suffering? In verse 20, it says this, But you, dear friends, by building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you not into eternal punishment, but into eternal life. A life that will go on forever. In the book of Jude, the antidote to suffering is mercy. Now, uh, as I read 
and, and was studying for this, past, for this sermon, I was surprised by that. If somebody would have asked me what's the operative, opposite of suffering, I would have said happiness, um, peace, joy, something. I would not have immediately thought that mercy was the antidote or the opposite of what suffering is. But if suffering is the just and, dare I say, promised outcome of sin, if, it, if the suffering is an act of justice, then the way that we're freed from that just suffering is if we're forgiven. If Jesus dies for us and delivers us from the just consequences of our sin. Mercy frees us from suffering for what we deserve. Mercy and suffering are opposites. I think that's an incredible thought. That maybe the reason why we experience suffering in this world is because the mercy of God hasn't filled our hearts sufficiently. And if our hearts were completed with mercy, we wouldn't feel suffering. It's an interesting idea. So, uh, I have a, I have a, a religious heart. And when I read a passage like they serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal life, these sinners deserve punishment, I think that the way to get out of suffering is to, is to do and be better. I'm just, okay, if suffering is the consequence of sin, then the way that I no longer suffer is I have to become a better person. I have to do it all right. And if I can manage to have a life that's perfectly lived, it will be a life void of suffering. I really, I, I've really thought that. That whenever I'm suffering, I think I've done something wrong or you've done something wrong. I just assume that. And so uh, the way to get out of that is to do something right. And if I could be good enough, and if you wouldn't mind, if you could be good enough, then there wouldn't be any more suffering in the world. Because the suffering is the consequence, the just consequence of being bad. And so in my mind, the logic says, then to overcome suffering, we all need to become good. And so what we should all do, and we'll have a sign up afterwards, we should all hold hands across Canada and believe super positive thoughts about one another, and all try to be good people. Well, of course, we know that there's never enough goodness to somehow free us from suffering, in our own hearts or in anyone else's hearts. And so we struggle, don't we? But here's the lie. The lie is that being good gets us out of suffering, or other people being good around us get us out of suffering. And, and uh, Jude says something very radical. He says, not at all. What gets us out of the penalty and consequence of sin is mercy. And only as we receive God's mercy and give that mercy away to others do we find ourselves 
delivered from suffering. So think about this now. Um, you know, we're on the marriage theme. It started. Uh, so uh, if, you're, if you're married, there's going to be conflict. Conflict produces suffering. And what's the typical way that we think that we'll get out of suffering in our marriage is I'll be better or you'll be better. But the answer for sure is about being better. Stop, you know, gossiping or being self-centered or being critical. Uh, do better. And I'm going to try to do better too. And if we can both be, be uh, enough better, then there won't be suffering in our marriage. This just seems obvious, doesn't it? That everybody should be trying harder to be better and then suffering would go away. Well, if you've been married for a minute, what you'll discover is that doing better, first of all, is pretty tricky and never quite enough. And eventually, somebody needs to choose mercy. And as soon as mercy comes into a marriage, the consequences of sin are removed and peace and joy are found in that place. The most practical antidote to suffering in a relationship is not to perfect the relationship, but to choose mercy. This, of course, is exactly what Jesus did in dying on the cross. In our relationship with him, we will never be perfect enough to be at peace and to be free of suffering in our relationship with Jesus. We keep sinning. And breaking relationship. His response was to initiate mercy. And that mercy heals the consequence of our sin and erases suffering. I, uh, the, uh, I believe that scripture summarizes the, the, the Christian message or the gospel with two words, mercy and grace. Now, I have an a leaning or an orientation towards grace. And grace is the empowering presence of God to do better. God giving you his spirit to help you do better. I love that word. And I love by his grace, we become better. We grow, we mature, become more loving. I love that. Grace makes tons of sense as to how it will address suffering. Everybody does better by his grace. I tend to undermine the power of mercy in my life and in my relationships. I often don't see how powerful it is. I get to see how grace-filled trying better will help. And God has me on a journey of understanding how profound and healing mercy truly is. Mercy heals suffering. So much so that when Jesus dies on the cross, uh, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy. 
Now, suffering then became a joy. Because as he gave away, as he was motivated by mercy, even what looks to be negative becomes a positive. Mercy is that powerful. This is remarkable. The antidote to suffering is mercy. Now, here's the challenge. Mercy must be kept. It says in verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you uh, into eternal life. Uh, we need to keep ourselves in mercy. Because here's, I don't know if you've noticed this, but mercy leaks. Uh, mercy seems to drain out of our lives and we're back to being judgmental about ourselves and others. It seems to be hard to live inside and to maintain, to persevere in mercy. Why is that so? Why is it hard to stay in that sweet spot of mercy? And for me, it's this. I forget what I deserve. I forget what I deserve. You see, over the years, um, I've become better. Like I, I look at, um, you know, I look at what I was like, you know, when I was a teenager. It, it's, it's already a long time ago. And I remember my immaturity quite accurately. I remember doing very, very uh, self-centered and, and horrible things. 20s, not much different. Getting married super helped. Being filled with the spirit, life-changing. And I've grown up. And then what happens as you experience doing a few good things, you tend to think that's all that's going on in your heart. You deceive yourself because you have a bit of goodness going on, by God's grace. And you think that that's your primary thing. And, and I forget how wicked my heart is. And I forget how much I need mercy. I forget. I forget what I deserve. I listen to people describing their life troubles. And there seems to be a consistent theme in how we describe our troubles. We're innocent and everyone else is at fault. It's just a slight bias. But we're innocent and everyone else is at fault. As soon as a story of suffering is described that way, it is almost guaranteed that the suffering will still remain. Only when a story is described with humility is there any possibility for mercy to invade that story and purge that story of pain. Mercy delivers us 
from pain. But as I become self-righteous and see myself as, as rising above the need for mercy, what ends up happening is when difficulties happen around me, when I feel, when I, when I experience suffering, I think it's all unjust and I don't deserve this. I don't deserve how people are treating me right now. Do you know how hard I've tried to be good? And now the world becomes unjust. And as the world becomes unjust, I feel justified in being a victim and staying uh, in my pain and suffering. The way that I become free is I realize what I really deserve. And when difficult things happen to me, that's not even close to what I deserve. And what I really need is mercy. And what will really heal the pain that even comes from outside is mercy. And now I'm delivered. Are you following the logic? I think this is such a big deal. I start by being self-righteous, see how people treat me as being unjust, and I'm stuck in suffering. My freedom is found in admitting my own sinfulness, and then I'm no longer insulted by how people treat me because I know what I deserve. And what heals my heart is forgiveness and love, not fighting for my rights as if I deserve anything but eternal fire. When we remember our need for mercy, today's troubles, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, are light and momentary. They're light and momentary reminders of the consequence of sin. Here's how it works for me. I think I'm repeating myself, but I want to. I think it's helpful. Here's how it works for me. Somebody is rude towards me and I get insulted. This is, what, this is my journey of getting free. So somebody's rude, insulting, whatever. I'm driving yesterday in my lane. I'm just driving in my, super innocent. You have no idea how innocent I am. I'm driving in my lane and there's parked cars and a person comes and, uh, speeds up and cuts in front of me, so I have to slam on the brakes in order to not, uh, you know, hit them. I am so innocent. It's just shocking when you th how innocent I am. And in that moment, I feel rage. Stopped being innocent. How do I get out of that moment? I remember... I've done that. Not nearly as badly as they did it, but I've done that. I've done way worse things. And as soon as I remember my sinfulness and need of mercy, I'm now able to administer mercy to others in their sinfulness. And now I'm free of suffering on account of their sin as much as mine. Isn't that fascinating? Mercy even delivers me from having pain and other people inflicting it on me. As soon as I feel mercy, my pain goes away. For as long as I feel justified, 
my pain remains. I think that is revolutionary. Revolutionary. So what do we do with this? Our light and momentary struggles, troubles, are reminders of the consequence of sin. And so we long for an eternal glory where mercy wins. I don't know about you. I am longing for heaven. Oh, man. I am so longing for heaven. But here's what's interesting about heaven. Heaven is ruled by mercy, not self-serving justice. Sometimes I think, we think that when we get to heaven, finally, everything will be done the way it should be done. Everything will be perfect in this kind of legalistic way. Every, everybody will be, will be sinless, and everybody will always be doing the right thing, and I will be doing the right thing, and that's what's going to make it perfect, and that's what's going to get rid of all pain. Nope. What's going to get rid of all pain is that mercy will be the rule of law in the kingdom of God. And somehow that mercy will deliver us from suffering. I know I'm not preaching all that the Bible teaches on this. I am trying to stay true to what Jude is preaching. There's more going on, but this is worth focusing on. Mercy is going to win, and mercy will rule the kingdom of God. That means that we could actually be disappointed in heaven. What? Like I forgive like all the time? Even when I've done nothing wrong? Well, that's disappointing. Mercy is practically, not just theoretically or theologically, mercy is our salvation from sin and its effects. Its effects when we sin and the effects of others sinning against us, we are delivered through mercy. That is just amazing. So let's conclude. How then do we keep ourselves? How is mercy kept so we don't leak it out? How do we stay in mercy? Jude begins and ends with this. Verse 1. We are kept by Jesus Christ. Jesus keeps us. In verse 24, it goes on to 25, but we'll just say 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Jesus keeps us in his mercy. It's a gift to stay in mercy. It's a gift. Guilt or striving does not keep us faithful. Mercy does. You do, I do this all the time. I, I feel like I'm being quite sinful. Do you know what I always do? I try harder. I just try harder. Or, one of my favorites, you can try this, doesn't work, but you can try it. I make myself feel guilty. I go, you do that? Shame on you. And I think that guilt or striving make me godly. Mercy makes me godly. The gift of mercy heals my heart so I no longer have to defend myself 
so that I can now be present for others and I'm delivered from sin. Mercy saves me. The mercy of God. So I no longer have to be defending myself or insulted by how others treat me. I'm forgiven of horrendous crimes. And to forgive you is, it would just be hypocritical to not forgive because I know how much I've been forgiven. So let me ask in closing, where have you forgotten mercy? Where have you just forgotten mercy? Because it leaks. Where have you forgotten mercy? Where do you feel that you've forgotten your need of mercy? I don't need to be forgiven anymore. Where have you forgotten your need for mercy? Oh, how I pray that mercy would be at the forefront of our minds. It would be our guiding light. Mercy. What does remembering mercy look like? What would it look like to remember mercy in that way? In those places where I condemn myself and beat myself up, thinking that that's going to make me more godly, my Father invites me to remember mercy again that was going to deliver me from the suffering of guilt and shame is forgiveness, not perfection. Mercy saves me from the consequence of my sin. When I feel self-righteous towards others and insulted with what others have done towards me, remembering mercy helps me look on them with compassion not take it personally. I find it so remarkable when Jesus says on the cross, when Stephen says this is being stoned, is being pummeled to death with stones. What do they say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. They're free. In the midst of Jesus paying for sin, in the midst of Stephen absorbing people's unrighteous sin to the point of death, they're able in that moment to say, Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't, I don't know of a greater freedom. I don't know of a greater freedom. And that freedom is afforded us through being defined by mercy. Now, I'm sure that we could have another sermon that says, but when do, we, when do we stand up for the, those in prison and the poor? And that, that can be another sermon. But let's not dilute what Jude is speaking to us about. I deserve suffering. I deserve it. I don't know, you know, uh, when you get older... You, uh, you start looking at what your, you know, you know, my mother had dementia and, you know, it was there cancer in the family. And you, you do this, like you start thinking about that because it, you know, could be, could happen. And what, what goes through my mind is 
you know, how do I eat healthier, get on God's good side? Like, how do I deserve health? And if that does happen to me, am I going to be angry? Am I going to say I don't deserve this? Is there anything more beautiful to see someone suffer unjustly and still have a merciful heart is one of the most beautiful things you can ever see. And I've watched people. I was, um, Connor Bishop married my daughter a few days ago. And I remember uh, seeing him, at, we, it was uh, during COVID, he was on Zoom, he was in our D group. He was on Zoom and uh, we saw him on one Friday, our D group met at 7.30 a.m. every Friday. And on one morning, he was in uh, the hospital, and by the next Friday, he had passed away. And our whole group, some of them had never met him in person. I had the privilege a number of times, but many had never ever seen him in person. And we watched him on his deathbed with nobility and kindness. And he was a man who died nobly, and he did not leave behind mercy, and died with the dignity of humility. It was very, very moving. I had not, uh, I haven't been that close to watching watching people in the in the process of dying. I haven't seen that a lot. I would like to be that noble, wouldn't you? I would like to have something happen to me that I didn't deserve, I think I deserved. And I would like to, by God's grace, not leave behind his mercy. Oh, that we could be that kind of people. Not resenting what comes our way, but saying, I deserve worse. And were it not for the, for the grace of God, I would be suffering for for eternity in hell, deserving all of it. Father, I ask on behalf of my friends that you would deliver us from our sin, from the consequences of our sin, primarily the sin of self-righteousness, of thinking that we're somehow above the law, somehow undeserving of punishment. Would you deliver us from arrogance that we could be healed by your mercy? Father, please, be kind to us. We see so much suffering in this world. We experience so much suffering. Thank you for giving us a means of liberation. And so we, with great hunger and great desperation, cry out for your mercy upon us today. Thank you for the freedom that you purchased by your blood.